Well, good morning. Well, welcome. Uh, greetings from Providence Baptist Church. Uh, we're so thankful, thankful for the invite from Pastor Andrew to come. Andrew is a, a great friend of ours. And uh, every Sunday at Providence, we pray for area churches, pray for area pastors, and uh, quite frequently, we pray for Pastor Andrew and y'all, so y'all have a good friend uh, in us at Providence. So we're thankful for y'all and y'all's ministry here in this growing area. So we continue prayers for you guys and uh, y'all's ministry here. But again, thankful for the opportunity to come uh, present the word this morning. If you would uh, bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful to be able to open up your word. Thankful uh, that you revealed yourself to us, through your son, and we know your son through the word and the implantation of that faith through the Holy Spirit. I pray as we look through Psalm 2, Lord, you will open up our eyes, open up our, our, our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will edify and build up your church. I pray for those who are here this morning that don't know you, uh, Lord, that they will come to know you, they will hear the gospel and believe. Pray for uh, everything that comes out of my mouth, Lord, will be in line with what your word says. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, back in May, many of us witnessed something that hasn't, no, I don't think most of us have ever uh, seen before in our lives. The coronation of a new monarch in England. I watched much of it and I found it actually quite interesting. You have this media buildup for weeks and for months. And the day is finally here. You have this lavish parade-like convoy and the king comes in his chariot. The king's arrived at Westminster Abbey. He has his royal clothing on. He walks in and everybody stands Music is playing. Prayers are prayed. And this old and gorgeous cathedral echoes with the sound of all the music. Have all these beautiful choirs singing as well. And then he sits on this centuries-old throne and has a crown placed on his head. Now we as Americans watch this, and we watch it with a little bit of suspicion, don't we? It's just ingrained in us as Americans. Of course, the United States started as a rebellion against King George of England. But this event still fascinates us. When we, what we read about in fairy tales and old stories, it's still a thing in modern times in the modern Western world. But there's something a little bit extra suspicious about this event. All this money is poured out on this ceremony, all this for a king. But we ask ourselves, okay, what is the king of England? What authority does he have? Well, in reality, it's, it's not much. He is technically head of state, but his authority is, is mostly ceremonial. There's no absolute monarchy. All this pomp and circumstance for someone who really doesn't have all that much authority and that over a tiny, in terms of size, country. Now, if all that is done for a figurehead, how much more should be done for a real king? Say one who is king over the heavens and the earth. 
Now, although our, our country's origins are from a rebellion against a king, we do indeed need a king. Monarchy is essential for our lives with God, as we just sang a bunch of songs about a king. Historical and present-day monarchies point to a present kingdom and a future kingdom that will be established forever. However, all of us are born into this world rebels against this true king. But why? And if we need to submit to him, what does life look like under his rule? Well, this morning we'll examine Psalm 2. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 2. It's, by the way, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. This song of Israel would be sung regularly as they anticipated this king to come. Now this song, actually, this is an interesting fact too. This psalm is sung by the early church as recorded in Acts 4. But this song, along with Psalm 1, would be the mental background of God's people as they sang the other psalms. In, the, in their congregational meetings, whether there were lamentation psalms, psalms of complaint, or, or praise psalms. Whether it was, Lord, where are you in this pain? Or, or, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. They could look back at this psalm and remember, he's coming. Amen. So Psalm 2 answers for us who this coming king is, why the nations rebel against him, and what looks like what life looks like under his rule. We can live in his peace and in his sovereignty. We can live in peace in 2024 under this king. But first, let's look at the beginning where we'll see the rebellion of us all to this king. Look at verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's stop there for a second. So this song opens up with a question. A question of marvel. Wow! These people really think they have a great plan here. They've assembled together against who? Yahweh. And against his anointed, which is the Hebrew word, where we get the Hebrew word uh, Messiah or Christ. So are they serious? And who are these folks that think they can rise up against the creator and sustainer of the universe? Well, it's the kings and the rulers of the earth. All the nations, everyone from every nation, which would have included Israel at this time as well. Why would they want to rebel and come after Yahweh and his Messiah? What do they say? Verse 3 tells us. We don't want to serve him. But this, this is a head scratcher. Now I know sin is irrational. Sin makes us stupid. But that, that dumb? There has to be some rationale for why the nations would do this. There has to be something that they're seeing or not seeing Making, making this plan seem like it would be executed well. Well, first we see this in the whole biblical narrative. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Both Adam and Eve seek to break their bonds of service to Yahweh. 
by taking that forbidden fruit. They have the freedom to eat whatever they want except for that one thing. What do they do? They break it. And as we go through the whole book of Genesis, the same sin repeats itself in different manifestations. And this continues throughout the biblical narrative. The rebellion against Yahweh and his anointed is also seen in the kingship of David a little bit later on, a few hundred centuries later. David also is given the title of Messiah, the anointed one. David is the anointed one of Israel. He is the anointed one of the Lord. The one Yahweh has set apart as king of his people. But what happens repeatedly in his life? Saul seeks to kill him. Because Yahweh, through the prophet Samuel, has anointed him. Years later, David's son seeks to kill him and seize that anointing as if he could. So you have this instance of rebellion and plotting against Yahweh and his anointed one. But as we see, as we continue on in the psalm, we realize, you know, I don't think he's talking about David here. He's related to David, but he's not David. Again, how is it that these folks think they can rebel and topple over Yahweh and his king? Well, fast forward 28 generations after David to the birth of Jesus, who is called the what? Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. In weakness, he is born to a poor family. In weakness, he is the carpenter's son, who in weakness is crucified by a king, Herod, and a ruler, Pilate and a despicable criminal's execution. Why? Why is it that these folks think they can plot against God and the Christ? Well, in their blindness, they see the cross as weak. Even his disciples saw that. This is not, this is not the action of a, of a Messiah, of a king over Israel, to be crucified. In their blindness, they see the cross as weak because the cross is weakness. This Christ seemed to be conquered when he died on the, on the cross. The way God operates is perceived as weakness by the blind. But of those who have their eyes opened, they see his glory and power displayed. Amen. But only those who are his people see it. The rest see it in weakness and hate it. They don't see glory, they see weakness. Kings are anointed with oil. Christ was anointed with blood. Kings have crowns of jewels. He had a crown of thorns. So we have to believe God's glory, His absolute glory is displayed in the cross. His character is on full display on Jesus' cross. His justice and His mercy joined together in this event. His kingdom is inaugurated, not on a throne, not in a big elaborate convoy, but on the bloody cross. The rebellion of this world and of you and me, we are rebels too, is rooted in our unbelief and our idolatry. We are born into this world transgressors of the first and second commandments. We don't believe God, so we create false gods. But idolatry, we think of idolatry in, in this certain way, but idolatry is at its core self-worship. Look at all the pagan gods of the ancient world. 
when they were created in man's image according to his liking. They would say, I will worship the God that gives me military success. I will worship the God that gives me fertile crops and a large family. I will worship the God who gives me success at the sea. A God of my own making that makes the, who likes the same things I like, likes the things that I like, and gives me what I want. But it's only the ancient world that worships idols, right? Well, if the core of idolatry is really self-worship, then it is on, in all of us. Our rebellion against our Creator is rooted in our unbelief and in our self-worship. We want to be free of Him so we can be masters of our own life. We want our spouse to be all about us and our needs. And what happens? Our marriages fall apart. We want our jobs to give us ultimate satisfaction. So what do we do? We constantly change jobs thinking that if I get this one job, then I'll be happy. The church does not give me what I want and what I need. So what do I do? I leave it for another and repeat that same cycle. Our lives are so centered on us. We are rebels against God because we want to be God. We are self-worshippers. We struggle with relationships, whether it be in marriage or the workplace or family or church, because we are self-worshippers trying to work together with other self-worshippers. We get mad because we don't get our way. So we leave to go to another place or to another person thinking that it's going to be different. And we quickly discover that it isn't. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Cain, just like the Israelites, just like Rehoboam, the list goes on and on. We are enthralled with ourselves. Before we know Christ, every aspect of our lives is in rebellion against our Maker. For those of us who know Jesus, we battle our rebellion. We battle our sin. The lost world doesn't battle sin. They just live in it. We battle daily to put to death our sin. We recognize that it is still in us, and we hate it. We hate it because the Spirit of God hates it. And we hate it because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. The hatred for sin in our own lives is not from us. It is from the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We know the wrath of God was poured out on our Savior because of our sin, and we no longer want to live in it. This rebellion Again, it's in us all. It's not just out there. It's in all of us. And how has God dealt with this rebellion? Well, that leads us to the second part of this section of this psalm here. Yahweh's response to us all. Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Amen. The stupidity of this rebellious people is comical. Now, the laughter described here is not concerning the judgment. That's, that's important to remember. The description of laughter is in response to the comical stupidity of the rebellion of humanity. It's so dumb, it's comical. However, the, mute, the mood quickly and dramatically shifts here. God's burning anger is stored up for the rebellious ones. And how does he respond? We see what the people said. Now Yahweh speaks and he gets the final word in this psalm. What does he say to them? I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. Now Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. This king will rule from Jerusalem. Looking forward to the new Jerusalem described in Revelation. So, but why is that so frightful? Well, from this post, he will execute judgment on all the earth. Those who are his will enter into his eternal glory. But those who continue in the rebellion will stand before the glorified king one day and give an account for their life. Once and for all, perfect justice will be executed finally. The king has executed perfect justice for his people in absorbing the punishment for their sin, while one day he will execute perfect justice on all those who rebel against him. All sin is dealt with, either on the king or on the rebels. All sin is dealt with. Brothers and sisters, I have no fear of judgment. I have no fear of when Jesus comes back. I look forward to when when Jesus comes back and establishes his rule, and I hope you do as well. Why? Why? Why do we in Christ have no fear of his coming back? Because Jesus died for my sins. I have believed in this gospel, and one of the fruits of this faith is assurance of his pardon. He has died for me, and I hope and pray that you have that same assurance as well. It's not based on anything in you, but only based on what this king did. That's our assurance, not observing anything in me, but observing what he has done. God dealt with my sin justly and mercifully. This is justice. God is just and the justifier of all those who trust in Christ. Think about society today. We like the idea of justice, but we really don't like justice. Again, this is what sin does. It makes us irrational animals, doesn't it? We get angry at injustice in the world. We see it on TV and in social media. We see wrong things done in the wrong way and nothing being done about it. But at the same time, we don't like the idea of punishment and regulation and laws and police and military and restitution or the thought of an eternal hell, the thought of a Savior who receives the punishment for our sin. I guess we just like being angry and don't want resolutions. I, I don't know. But God has set his judge on his holy hill. He will reign and bring judgment when he comes. But who is this king? What will he be like? Well, that leads us to the Messiah's response. You have the people's response. You have Yahweh's response. And now you have the Messiah's response. Look at verses 7 through 9. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will, get, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, again, now the Messiah speaks. People spoke, Yahweh speaks, now the anointed one speaks. And he opens up with a decree. Talking about a decree. Now what is a decree? It's an official order by a sovereign. This right here is a public 
declaration. This is important to note. This is what Yahweh has publicly ordered and declared of his anointed one. And what is this declaration? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Now again, it's important to remember this is a declarative public decree. Why remember this? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, as the New Testament writers inspired by Yahweh have said, He is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus is eternal. No beginning nor end. The Alpha, the Omega. He is one with the Father. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is one God who is three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's never been a moment when the Son was not. He has always been and always will be. So what is this today I have begotten you language? Wouldn't that imply he had a beginning? Again, remember this is a public degree, a decree at the beginning of verse 7. This is coronation language. Yes, he has always been and always will be the Son of God. But in time, he's been declared among the nations as the Son of God. Think about Matthew 3, 17, when Jesus is, is baptized. The Father declares publicly from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in Matthew 17, 5, at Jesus' transfiguration, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It wasn't like Jesus was not the son before he said all this. But it was a public declaration of his sonship that all the nations know, this is my son. The mystery of the ages, this mysterious figure that the Israelites would read about, has been revealed for all the world to know. Not just Israel, but all the nations. Amen. Now, because of this sonship, what is the son's inheritance? Look at verse 8 again. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He's not just king of Zion, not just king of Jerusalem, not just king of Israel. No, he is the king of all the earth. Yahweh and his anointed rule the heavens and the earth. There's not one Adam and all there is that Jesus is not owner. He will judge all these nations as we see in verse 9. But get this. He is also the Savior of all the nations. Saving a remnant from every tribe and tongue. And so how does this Messiah, this figure, this anointed one, how does he accomplish this kingdom building? Well, think forward to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus the Christ says... All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Notice that language? Directly from Psalm 2. Then what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So how does Christ accomplish this? His kingdom building? By giving his authority to the church. This is a command to the church. Not so much individuals, although individuals contribute. But as we see in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, this language is in coordination with the exhortations to the church. 
This is how Christ establishes and grows his kingdom through his church. Amen. Of which he bled and died for. And what exactly is this mission message? Well, this is something we all have to understand. As we see in Psalm 2, we see this, this king, this ruler and all that. There's something else about who this king is. Pretty quick to realize, even from the Old Testament, there has to, there has to be a mediator between God and man. There is such a, a chasm between God and us that it is impossible, it is impossible for us to come to him without someone in between. This psalm can't be talking about David. David was a sinful human being just like me and you. This can't be talking about Solomon, his son, who was, who was the wisest of all the kings. As you read about the life of Solomon, he was a dreadful sinner too. It has to be someone, talking about someone who is indeed Yahweh and also a king on this earth. Who can this be? It is our Lord Jesus. Amen. God and man and one person. He is both judge of all the earth and the one who receives the judgment that is due on all the earth. The begotten Son of God. And if you know Jesus, you are a child of God. You can call God Father because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and brother. Now, this being a child of God, we're not begotten like the Lord Jesus, who is indeed one with the Father, but you are adopted into God's family. And because of this, look at this passage again. Look at the Son's inheritance. I will make the, the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This is important for us to realize as adopted children of God through Jesus Christ. All that is his, believer, all that is his is yours as well. Of course, this is not the case right now, but one day it will be. This is our future. You own nothing now, but one day you will own everything through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. However, this inheritance as we see, it isn't for everybody, but anybody can have it by the will of the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the psalmist's exhortation to us all, look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. So now we are in the final stanza of this glorious psalm. The psalmist speaks here with an exhortation to all the kings of the earth, and all of us, for that matter. How do we escape, how do we escape this judgment? How do we avoid this crushing wrath that we poured out on the final day? Well, we heed the psalmist's wise words and warning. We joyously submit to Yahweh by adoring his son, by taking refuge in him and him alone. We serve Yahweh and rejoice in how? By kissing the son and taking refuge in him. This, is, this language of bowing before a king and kissing his feet 
talking about this. This is Mary, Martha and Lazarus' sister. What does she do? She anoints Jesus with the costly perfume and wipes his feet with her hair. Why does she do this? Because she believes that Jesus is the anointed one. He is Yahweh's king. And then you notice the final line of the psalm. Signs kind of familiar. If you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together, you see the bookends here. It's the right bookend to Psalm 1-1. Psalm 1-1 is, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and uh, does not walk in... He walks in the, not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the sea of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now you see the end of Psalm 2, of the sequel to Psalm 1. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Who is the him? The anointed one. The Messiah, namely Jesus. All who rest under his canopy of righteousness by faith are blessed. But looking back at the first song, you see the characteristics of the one who does take refuge in him. What does taking refuge in him look like? This Messiah. Take a second to look at Psalm 1 for, for a while. The one who takes refuge in him, the one who kisses the son, the one who is blessed is the one who rests in him has an insatiable desire for his words. This is the words of Christ. When I read Psalm 2, this is the word of Christ. When I read Genesis, this is the word of Christ. When I read Matthew, it's the word of Christ. When I read Hebrews, it's the word of Christ. When I read Revelation, it's the word of Christ. It is my food. It's my joy. This is what it looks like to take refuge in him. They want to know him, and the way to know him is to know his word. They know his grace. And in all of this talk about the wrath of the Son, yet here you see abundant grace. All, all who come to him, he will not cast out. All, all who come to him will not have a speck of his wrath. All, all who come to him will not be broken by the rod of iron. All, all who forsake their rebellion will notice that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you believe this? Do you really? We like to talk about the sovereignty of God. That he is Lord of all the earth. He is master over time and space. We believe in sovereign grace. But do we really? Maybe we believe it in theory. But how does it really affect our lives? Are you filled with constant anxiety? Are you a control freak? Do you feel like you have to manipulate situations to make sure things are right and in order? Abraham and Sarah, I read through the Genesis narrative, they believed in the sovereignty of God in theory. But as you see in Genesis, they felt like they had to manipulate situations in order to get God's will done. And guess what? There were consequences to that. We're just like them. We're just like them. I read about the disciples. I'm just like them. Thankful for God's grace towards a ridiculous sinner. Listen, truly believing in the sovereignty of God 
is walking according to his revealed will. It's not doing nothing. It's walking according to his revealed will. We don't know everything. He hasn't revealed everything to us. But what he has revealed for us is all we need for faith in Christ and godliness. I don't need anything else beyond scripture to walk in faith in him. So it's walking according to his revealed will. It's not doing nothing. But walking in and what he calls us to do today and leaving tomorrow for him to determine. Also, do we really believe that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? The foolish rebels in verse 3 wanted to break his yoke from their necks. But here's the irony. His yoke is easy. He is gentle with us, his people. It's not saying life is easy, but his yoke is easy. But do you see, as you read this, do you see serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling? And you think, man, I have to do all to the glory of God and I, I can't mess up. I have to do this for my taskmaster because he is a tyrannical taskmaster ready to beat all of his followers with a rod. He is not a tyrannical taskmaster. He is our loving and gracious Savior. He is kind and gentle. We serve a kind and gentle Savior who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is wrathful to those who reject the gospel in their rebellion. But for those who receive his gospel, he receives as his beloved brothers and sisters. Do you believe that God's wrath is no longer on you? His discipline on you is not in wrath, it's in love as a father loves his children. The consequences of, of our sin as believers is not God pouring his wrath on us. He no longer have wrath on us. It is his loving discipline. He is gentle. Because his goal for you is that you reflect the image of Christ, that you will be built up in the image of Christ. Which is not always a comfortable thing. He doesn't have a task list for us to complete each day. His task for you is to believe him. Believe his word. The doing of his word comes from believing it. And we live by what we truly believe. So Psalm 2 teaches us that Yahweh reigns in heaven and on earth through his king so believers can submit to and live in confidence in the one in whom they take refuge. With that said, we must submit to the one who rules the nations and to his means by which he conquers. So how do we submit to him and daily to his means? We believe him. I'm not just saying believe in him. Believe him. Believe his words. We as a church must believe him. We can't kiss him or pay homage to him if we don't believe him. We can't serve him joyfully with trembling if we don't believe him. To take refuge in him is to believe him. When he says, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, believe him. When he says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares, believe him. Church, when he says, make disciples by baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded you, and he will be with us as a church until he comes again, believe him. Amen. The local church, to use uh, a, a monar monarchical language, the church, the local church is the embassy of his kingdom. So why do we plant churches? Why do we start new churches? 
Want to revitalize churches? We want more embassies to the kingdom. So is Christ the ruler of, the, of all the nations, of every people group, of every province of, and state, of every county and community? Then that place needs embassies, i.e. local gospel preaching churches. Amen. So how do we change our mindset about this? We get out of our self-worship and worship the king and go about his business. Letting our lives reflect his lordship, his kingship. So maybe you are here today and you've never heard about what this king has done. This king is quite different than all the other kings you've ever heard about. This king didn't stay on his throne. He came down to this sinful world and lived a perfectly righteous life of which none of us could do. Died on the cross for us and paying the punishment our sin, being buried, and then rising on the third day, defeating death, which plagues us all. But one day, he died and was raised. No, no other king could raise himself from the dead. He is raised, and he is now ascended and at the right hand of the Father, and will come one day again to reign and rule forever. Praise the Lord. So my question for you, if you don't know him, do you believe this gospel? Trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And what does he do? He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his immortality. That God's wrath will no longer be on me, but it is replaced on Christ. And that we have eternal life. So if that's you, please call out to him today and trust in him. Now for all of us, Christ's monarchy is not ceremonial like the king of England. It is actual. It is cosmological. It is eternal. It is good. And he is a kind and gentle king. So come to him. Bow down to him. Believe him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are king. And you rule over us as your church. Not any other man but you, the God-man, help us today to submit to you and every day submit to you and trusting that you have our best interests at heart. Your glory is, should be our desire. Help that to be our desire. Lord, we thank you for this gospel. We're thankful for our King who served us and died for us and was raised for our justification. And we pray in his name. Amen.